The book that inspired this sermon this morning is called You Don't Look Like Anyone I Know by Heather Sellers. Um, And the one thing that I forgot in remembering everything that I remembered this morning was to bring the book so that I could show it to you, but I promise it's a real book. Um, It's available on Amazon, and it's... um, The author, Heather Sellers, has a very rare, very strange condition known as prosopagnosia, or face blindness. And um, she's unable to recognize or remember faces. Uh, The word comes from the Greek prosopon, or face, and the root words a and gnosis, without knowing the same root as the word agnostic. And the complete title of this sermon, which was the other thing I forgot to put in the order of service, and I did the order of service, so it's it's, it's all me, Um, The Mysterious Disorder of Face Blindness and What It May Teach Us About the Spiritual Life. Before she wrote this book, and indeed before she was diagnosed with the disorder, the author was already a writer and a teacher of English and creative writing at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. And I first became aware of her and her book while driving home one Saturday evening, listening to Terry Gross interview her on Fresh Air. And I was already late to change my clothes and head back out for another engagement, but I sat in my driveway. I had one of those KDAQ driveway moments they always talk about. I sat in the driveway taking notes on what was left of the interview and then writing down all I could remember of what I had heard while I was still out on the road. I remember thinking at the time that I had a lot to learn from this woman about the spiritual walk. I was particularly struck by her frank description of her difficulties with this disorder since childhood, but even more so by her statement that in retrospect, she believed it had been much more of a gift to her than a curse. A few days later, I told my friend and writing buddy, Laura Flett, about the interview and all the things about it that were kind of settling in and making a home inside of me. She responded by buying me the book. you got to love a friend like that. Um, and so began my own journey with this story. And Laura, by the way, facilitates a Wednesday evening writer's group that meets in different people's homes. I can't promise you that she'll buy you a present if you come. But... Uh, she will, you will receive gifts of the Spirit, and um, you will j- definitely jumpstart your creativity. So that's how I began my journey with this story. So this morning, I'd like to give you first at least a small window into this disorder, and believe me, it will be small because, um, as we like to say, I'm neither a rocket surgeon nor a brain scientist. But uh, to spend some time exploring the gifts and even blessings that Heather Sellers has drawn from her experience and how we might cultivate those gifts in our own spiritual path, even if we can recognize the faces of our friends and loved ones every day. And I've recognized six of these blessings. If you read the book, you may see more or you may see different ones, but they are the gift of not knowing, the gift of living in the now and meeting the people in our lives right there, the gift of seeing the new in the familiar and the familiar in the new, the gift of sharing openly and honestly the burdens we are carrying and being able to ask for help. The gift of Tonglen, the meditative practice we encountered earlier, or you can call it spiritual alchemy or converting experience into nutrition. And finally, the gift that all of these can be to our life here 
in a covenanted community. But first, because it's so little known and even less understood, a bit of background on prosopagnosia. Though we still have much to learn, scientists believe they have isolated the affected part of the brain, the fusiform gyrus, which is a part of the temporal lobe that affects not only face and body recognition, but processing of color information, word recognition, number recognition, and identification of things within categories, boys, girls, flathead screwdrivers, whatever. Um, Prosopagnosia... There's one of those P's. Prosopagnosia appears to affect only face recognition and, in fact, body recognition, like the kids we're talking about. Look at them. Look at the way they act and walk. And body recognition is something they often develop to a fine degree to compensate for their lack of face recognition. So essentially, if you cut off the top of your skull, and I don't recommend that, but um, if you cut off the top of your skull and kind of lifted your brain out, it would, it would be right here, um, the fusiform gyrus. Like I said, not, not a recommended practice. Um, though it was thought for years to be exclusively caused by traumatic brain injury, current research indicates that maybe a good 2.5% of the population are born with this disease to some degree or another of severity. They have contracted it genetically. Some famous prosopagnosiacs include, um, probably the most famous, is Jane Goodall. Um, the world-renowned anthropologist and primatologist and the leading expert on uh, chimpanzees. Um, Interestingly enough, she's had no trouble at all recognizing the chimps' faces. Um, And it's true that she's observed a lot more about the chimps' behavior than just their faces, and that unless they're in the circus, chimps usually don't do confusing things like change clothes. The research does indicate that the disorder affects only the recognition of human faces. Her sister has it too. So did the late writer Kurt Vonnegut. And also what was very interesting to me, the brain researcher Oliver Sacks, who's, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, but he's made his life's work out of treating and researching people with really rare and often bizarre brain disorders. He wrote The Man Who Thought His Wife Was a Hat, which should give you some idea of the kinds of things that he studied. And he was played by Robin Williams in the movie Awakenings, the one where the doctor woke up the coma patients um, for a while. Face blindness is a disorder of perception rather than vision, and it's important to understand the difference between the two. Vision merely captures images. Vision happens in the mechanics of the eye, but seeing and hearing happen only when the brain takes over. So perception is what our brain does with these raw seen images. It has little to do with vision and much more to do with memory. Remember that. Perception has little to do with vision and much more to do with memory. When we see something, we don't always visualize it anew. A good example is watching a dog running behind a picket fence. We don't see a sliced dog, and that's good because, ooh. We see a dog because we have a memory of how a dog works and how a fence works. So perception, this function of memory, overrides vision. The prosopagnosiac's memory doesn't archive faces at all. They can see them. They understand the whole concept of two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Um, Most of them do. There are some really, really severe cases, apparently, where the face looks like a blur. But for the most part, they do understand that. But they don't archive the distinct characteristics of faces, even for a few minutes. Sometimes this can even apply to their own faces in a mirror, particularly if um, the mirror is in a new location where they might come upon it by surprise. 
Although people with this disorder can certainly feel mentally ill, it's not a mental illness so much as just a lack of a particular face processor, kind of like software that just never got installed that everybody else has. Heather Seller's own stories about her experience growing up with this disorder are probably some of the best ways to begin to convey what a difficult life it really can be. She never even knew the disorder existed until she was 38. Um, The book begins with um, a trip to Florida that she made with her then-fiancé and his two sons. And she was going to go to a high school reunion and a speaking engagement, and they were going to throw in a trip to Disney World. And her um, fiancé went off with his older son to ride one of the scary roller coasters that she and the younger one were not interested in riding. And while he was gone, she thought she panicked because she thought she had lost the little boy. And so when the fiancé came back and, you know, they found the little boy nearby and she said, and he said, I was right there. I was right in front of you, Heather. I waved at you when you called my name. And she thought about it and come to think of it, she did remember that she'd seen the strange little boy waving at her when she was frantically trying to find her, her soon-to-be stepson. So it's that, it's that severe. It's, it's that extreme. Um... In spite of this, in spite of not knowing the disease existed and she was 38 and not being formally diagnosed until she was 40, she's had a successful teaching career and a highly functional life, but only through a great many adaptive strategies that she was kind of even unconsciously employing. Um, compounding her lifelong struggle was a mother who, though never formally diagnosed, was almost certainly a paranoid schizophrenic and an alcoholic father who was in and out of their lives until he finally moved out for good. Her mother moved her and her brother to a different house every year and sometimes two or three times a year, always afraid that the government was after them. At any given time, they might be inside with the windows boarded up or riding around at all hours of the night while their mother looked for their father. So the rarity of Heather's condition, along with her chaotic family life, were huge factors in the delay of her diagnosis. When she often didn't recognize the kids in her own school from day to day, she'd chalk it up to being the new kids so much of the time. She did manage to make a few friends and envied their blessedly normal homes, but she also thought they were weird, obsessing over teen idols and insisting that she pick the one which she thought was the cutest, Sean Cassidy or Leif Garrett or whoever. She couldn't tell them apart, and she didn't care. She was always a bit of a loner and an outcast in school because she often didn't recognize her classmates from day to day, and people thought she was either a snob or just crazy like her mother. Although she believed she was born with a disorder, she never noticed it as a problem until high school, which was the first time that she went to the same school for two years in a row. She discovered the existence of her condition, as I said, at age 38, almost by accident. After that Florida trip, she started seeing a therapist, Peter Helder, uh, about old issues from her relationship with her mother, and she was voraciously researching paranoid schizophrenia, terrified of genetic components. And the Google rabbit hole, as it often does, led her to some articles on face blindness, and everything about the description of that disorder struck a chord with her. She was very lucky that this therapist who'd barely heard of it and wasn't sure he even believed she had it, I think all doctors and therapists and everybody must hate that patients have the internet, 
But in spite of all that, he was willing to learn with her and to work with her. And further digging led her to some Harvard researchers interested in her case and willing to test her. One of the first most basic tests is to recognize a series of famous faces without their hair or ears. I posted the Harvard test recently on my Facebook page, and a number of you took it, none of whom turned out to be face blind. Of the 30 faces, most of you recognize at least 28 or 29. Some got a perfect 30. No one got less than 25. And I think we skewed the results somewhat because people were reading the comments before they took the test. Probably not the most valid scientific example. And I would have brought that test today, but it's very controlled on their website. You can't... um, you can't print out a copy. They, they, they um, are wanting to control, I think, you know, their results. Um, but I did do my own little All Souls version of the test on the front of the order of service. So do these people look like anyone you know? I had a couple of folks this morning have trouble with a couple of them. <laughs> I just heard Noah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, somebody else couldn't get Noah. You weren't the only one. Anyway, you can have some fun with that. So how could Heather possibly look at this incurable disorder as a gift and one that she might not even choose to give back, even if she could, because there is no cure? Adaptive strategies are, are, are the ticket. She feels it has given her gifts she's been able to use in her writing, in her relationships with friends and loved ones, and even growing up in her particularly awful home situation. Gifts she would not have if she weren't face blind. And the first is the gift of not knowing. Comfort with ambiguity, even delight in the not knowing, is an essential for a writer or an artist of any kind And I'm sure there are no Unitarian Universalists that can relate to comfort with ambiguity, right? Totally foreign concept. It's a very valuable gift for a spiritual seeker. It's the open window to co-creating with the universe, a book, a play, a painting, a garden path, a spiritual path, a life. Facebook is going to come up a lot today. Facebook, (laughs) ha, ha, ha. Anyway. I watch my friends on Facebook who are creating beautiful rooms, Katie with her new house and Marianne with the stone path in her garden, and they go into it happily not knowing quite what it will look like at the end and how it will all turn out and just enjoying the adventure. I watched Laura and other artist friends recently really step out of their kind of usual patterns and and contribute pieces to the nude show that was over in Bossier. And uh, most of them had never done that kind of work and had no idea how it might turn out. But that ambiguity is the precipice for a leap of faith. And Heather Seller's life is all about the not knowing. One quote of hers that I found particularly engaging in that first interview was, I can just sit and sit and not know the heck out of something. (laughs) And can't you? Isn't that one of the reasons you're here? The gift of living in the now and always meeting the people in our lives that way. Heather has to relearn people each time she sees them by their clothes, by their hair, by their gait, as Bill mentioned, if she gets to see them walk, and their context in her life. Sometimes, though not always, by their voices. For her, in particular, voices need to be very, very distinctive. 
If someone gets a haircut, buys new clothes, or even puts on a coat a minute later than she's just seen them, then she has to ask them all over again, please tell me who you are. But even people she's known well and for a long time have to remind her of who they are. And that, she says, turns out to be a gift. To quote her, I say, tell me who you are, and they do, and then we are right in that moment. What if with each new day you could not recognize those nearest and dearest to you by sight? Your spouse, your children, your closest friends? So often we look into the faces of those we love with expectations and assumptions. A familiar face is invested with all the stories we think we know about that person. But remember, perception is more a function of memory than vision. How often are we looking at what we remember or what we're expecting? than what we really see or hear or feel. Look around you. You may know something of the lives of some of these people, nothing of others. What if, in order to communicate with any one of them, you needed to ask every time, tell me who you are. You don't look like anyone I know. And then to know the answer you would need to be right in that moment, you would carry no baggage from the past, no smugly bored assumption of what the future might hold. Whatever disadvantage you might feel from not recognizing your loved one might even be compensated by the ways you could truly, newly know that person in the moment. You would always listen carefully and look deeply. So could we do that anyway? One of the disciplines we've been trying to practice here, and we need to get back to it as we all return from our summer adventures, is for each of us to have intentional one-on-one conversations with other people in the congregation, using an important question about something that has shaped the person you are today. These encounters have the power to change us as individuals, and I'm convinced to transform us as a congregation. They are also certainly a great way for people who don't know each other well to make connections. And yet, I've heard people say that some of the most surprising and meaningful conversations have been with people they thought they knew pretty well already. These conversational partners, whether knowingly or not, have set an intention to do the kind of deep listening and looking that Heather Sellers has to do every day of her life with everybody. And in that practice, we receive the gift of seeing the new in the familiar, and also the familiar in the new. Just as we look intentionally for what we don't know in the people we birthed or came from or adopted or married or befriended, we can look intentionally for all that we do know and recognize in the people we don't know. Jane Goodall said that after trying for a number of years to explain her disorder and meeting the frosty stares of people who thought she was making it up, She now uses a strategy of many prosopagnosiacs and simply pretends to recognize everybody. (laughs) Wouldn't you feel great if Jane Goodall said, hey, it's you, how are you doing? (laughs) And perhaps this too is something we should all do. Now again, like I tell the kids, don't go running off with the strangers. Don't go running up and hug complete strangers in Barnes & Noble. Um, Nor do I think you even need to pretend all that much. But can we meet the eyes of all we see in acknowledgement of the web that connects us, of these unseen strands that we know are there in the spaces between us? Can we live the practice of namaste, the greeting that translates essentially the God in me greets the God in you? When we put it that way, we'd know that face anywhere.
The gift of learning to share differences or challenges in our own lives, being honest with others about the burdens we are carrying, and asking for help. Initially, Heather wanted to stay in the closet with her face blindness, but her trusted counselor worked with her on coming out to everyone she knew. And in her research, she even found a book by one face-blind gay man who compared one coming-out process to the other, so they were very similar. She was very resistant to the idea at first, and even when she did tell people, she often had to tell them again and again. Like those who go through the other coming-out process, she was often surprised and moved by their various reactions, sometimes disappointed. But she says that enlisting their help, for the most part, has been a beautiful experience. Some were interested and sympathetic. Others, like one of her stepsons, still thought she was making it up. Though the younger one was very relieved and said, Good, I always thought it was because you hated me. I mean, isn't that, isn't that, yeah. And a colleague with an office down the hall had a similar reaction. Oh, good, because honestly, I just thought you were really snobby. Some kept saying, I have that. I'm terrible with names, too. But she's quick to tell you that, as a matter of fact, she is very good with names and with details of personal stories. Just needs to know which one is you. And though it took years to learn, she knows that the best way to deal with this is complete and immediate honesty. And for those of you who took the test online, um, it has some famous faces. And if you were able to say, he's that guy who was in Star Trek, or he's that guy who was in that, then you're not face blind. You have that reference. You have that context. You may... Not remembering names is what I, you know, lovingly call CRS syndrome. That's something else. You know, can't remember stuff. Yeah. So, um, so if you have that context memory, then you are not face blind. You can relax. And the gift of Tonglen, the Buddhist practice we encountered earlier in the meditation, that practice of freely and willingly taking in pain and suffering and transforming it into a positive force for peace and healing for oneself and for others. On most Monday nights, I go to a prayer and study group with a woman named Deshay Lott. Some of you know her. She's a teacher who has become a mentor and a dear friend. I thank the blessing of Barbara in my life for the blessing of Deshay in my life. Deshay has limb girdle muscular dystrophy, and over the years, her muscles have deteriorated to the point that she has only fine motor movement in her fingers and her face and lives on a ventilator in order to breathe. If anyone exemplifies the practice of Tonglin for herself and for others, it is Deshay, a Christian mystic who has worked through very intentional steps to become a spiritual master and who continues to teach the practice of meditation and to work with people on their spiritual development. She's also an eloquent educator and spokesperson on issues of disability. She's a PhD in English who was taught for years at LSUS. And she's a philanthropist who has established her own scholarship fund for graduate students with multiple physical challenges. She quotes a mentor of hers, John McDermott, who has spoken of the concept of converting experience to nutrition. Heather Sellers tells the story of one of her father's many girlfriends, the one she liked best over the years, Ruby. Ruby was gorgeous and kind and a flamboyant dresser. And Heather writes... Ruby always wore at least three or four beaded necklaces and one gold chain on which there was a mounded hunk of gold. Her nugget, she called it. It was all of her ex-husband's gifts melted down. (laughs) He was a bastard, Ruby said. 
But Ruby had taken her bad old days, she said, and made them into something she really loved. And that could be a good thing for me to know, she said. That bad can be converted into something beautiful. All that pain was worth a thing or two. Over the years, Heather has done exactly as Ruby taught. Ruby was practicing Tonglen, though she might never have called it that. And in doing so, in creating that gold nugget, and then in sharing its story, she was able to practice Tonglen with Heather as well and to teach her how to do it for herself. Had Heather made a literal gold nugget out of her own painful life experience, she'd probably fall to the ground if she ever tried to wear it. And yet there it is in the life she's carved out for herself, even before her diagnosis. Heather herself has learned over time to practice Tonglen with both her parents, knowing they were broken, taking on their brokenness as her own in those early years, yet learning over time that she could live with that brokenness, take it into herself as she must, and yet transform it into a gentle love to give back to them and a salvational practice for her. So she lives this practice of true compassion in daily life, and that leads us finally to the practice of each one of these gifts and what they might mean to our life in covenant with each other. As a number of you know, Barbara and I just returned from SWUSI, the Southwest UU Summer Institute, and one of the many thought-provoking ideas raised there by several of the speakers was, what if in the coming years we could become known as the religion of kindness and compassion? What if it didn't matter so much to us to be the smartest, the intellect is going to be there, or the wealthiest, which I'm not even sure is so true anymore, but we could become those people who truly walk the talk, who live as a community of compassion, not only for all who come through our doors, but for the community beyond our walls. Let us look and listen always for the stranger who lives in the friend and for the friend who lives in the stranger. Let me sit and not know the heck out of you. Let us all rejoice together in the not knowing, searching not only for the answers, but for all the new questions that each answer brings. Let us be willing to open our hearts to the practice of Tonglen by whatever name we may call it, to take in and bear the pain of others and of ourselves, and to practice the alchemy of a truly compassionate community. We begin this practice with ourselves and with each other, and we walk it out from here until everyone looks like someone we know. Thank you.